0: John chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, hear the word of the Lord. John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. All right, kids, you're dismissed. We're in John 4 together. There are Bibles in the back. I have the verses up, but if you want, uh, you can grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please buy the sound booth. Grab a Bible. Take it home with you. It's our gift to you. We would not want to have uh, anyone here that does not have a Bible that they can read for themselves. God's love letter. Cool shoes. God's love letter to you. So John chapter 4. We have been calling this series through the gospel, according to John, the invisible made visible. It's because John the Apostle has a first hand, in the first hand testimony, tells us about the perfect life, the ministry, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals to us that this Jesus is the invisible, is the, not the invisible, but the creator, transcendent God, become man. Took on flesh and blood, became human. So sound familiar. In about a week and a half we're gonna celebrate the incarnation, the coming of Jesus called Christmas. Last week, Jesus, if you remember, he was with his disciples, moved from Jerusalem where he was. He was having a conversation, if you remember, with Nicodemus. He's the Old Testament, excuse me, he's the uh, Old Testament scholar, Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin Council. He was with Nicodemus and he was in Jerusalem and he left there and he went west, northwest into the Judean countryside where he was with his apostles, his disciples. With the, it says an unhurried, kind of a unspecified time, and they were baptizing. We are told, remember from last week, that a dispute arose between John the Baptist's disciples and an unnamed Jew over purification. John chapter 3, verse 26, we learn that through this, this, this dispute, we find out that John's disciples had an issue. They had a bad attitude. They become jealous. They became jealous and and envious as they looked and they saw that Jesus was also doing baptisms and that more people were following Jesus than their rabbi, John the Baptist. John the Baptist had to straighten out their attitude and he reminded them, remember last week, that Jesus must increase, but he must decrease. John says, I am the voice. I was the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the heralder, heralding the coming of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 29, he says, not only am I the heralder, but I am the best man. I am the, the friend of the bridegroom. When the bridegroom come, and that's Jesus for his bride, my voice is going to diminish, and Jesus' voice is going to take center stage. I'm just the best man. He said, when the bridegroom comes and I hear his voice, and I do, my joy is full. My joy is complete. And he teaches us that the way to have eternal joy is to decrease and let Jesus increase. When you seek the pleasure and treasure and glory of Christ, he gives you his joy. Sound like a contradiction? It is not. So this morning, Jesus on the move again. Chapter 4. Very simple outline. We're going to look at the abandonment. We're going to to see the word left means to abandon. Jesus leaves the northwest side of Jerusalem and heads north more, but this time to the east, to a city. The abandonment, the appointment, he's going for a reason. And then we're going to see this approach, how how he meets this appointment, this woman at the well, and how he deals with her. We're going to draw some principles from that, and then we'll look at the abundance of life that he offers, okay? So that's where we're going. Look at with me, number one, the abandonment. Let's turn to John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, that's kind of an insert. There, was no, there are no quotes in, in the original Greek, okay, in the original letter uh, John wrote, right? So John's, we're putting that in, it's just to say this is, John is just rem- showing us that Jesus himself did not baptize. Verse 3, after that he says he left, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, okay? So last week it was John's disciples, they were envious, they were jealous, Jesus' success, they're like, everyone's following him. Now we see not only is Jesus' success, you know, was, was not happy, the, the disciples weren't happy, John's wasn't. Now the Jewish people find out this, this, religious leaders find out what's going on and they're not happy either. Now we don't know how they found out. Maybe it was the... the, 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 the this um, dispute that happened between John the Baptist's disciples and this unnamed Jew, we don't know. But what we do know is that the Messiah is on the scene. Jesus has come, and he is causing problems. He's, he's, he, the religious people are starting to take notice that he keeps increasing disciples, and more and more people are following him. It says Jesus himself didn't do with baptisms, but it was under his authority and under his leadership. Now, I love to study. I love to read. I have got to ask the question, Why? Why was Jesus giving that, not authority, but giving that job, if I can use that term, over to his disciples that he wasn't doing it, they were doing it under his authority? I don't know, it doesn't really say. But if if anybody in that day is anything like us today, I can only imagine. Well, I was baptized by the Lord, you know. The hand of God and put me down in the water. How about you? Oh, that guy, yeah, the Lord did me. I, I, I'm going on the book tours. Like, I'm writing, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm teaching, I'm speaking. It was Jesus himself that baptized me. You think, well, no, that, that wouldn't happen, really? First Corinthians 1. Paul says, it's been reported to me that Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, brothers. Quarreling in church, can you believe it? unbelievable. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And some of you actually say, well, you know what? No, that's great. All you guys follow. I follow Christ himself. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize you except one, Christmas, and Gaius too, so that no one could say that you were baptized in my name. In other words, Paul's like, you know what? Knock it off. It's, it's, It's not... Who baptized you? It's who died for you, right? My daughter Anna down in South Carolina. She lives in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, see the way I say that, kind of like Southern, like South Carolina. <laughs> anyway, y'all, I learned something. Y'all is two people. All y'all is everybody. Yeah, I learned that one. That's good. All y'all. <laughs> y'all come to dinner. It's two y'all. Y'all come to dinner. Everybody comes. Anyway. She led somebody to faith at her job and they started going to the church and, and the pastor called her and said, listen, I understand you were instrumental. Yes, I was. Listen, I want you to um, uh, come and baptize, do the baptism with us in the church on Sunday. She said, uh, okay, let, I'll call you back. Click, she called me right on the phone. Dad, the, the pastor asked me to baptize the, the one I led to faith. Can, can I do that? She didn't know. She didn't want to freak out. Let me call the, my father's a pastor and let him know. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and do it. And she had the pleasure of, of actually doing the baptism. It's not about who does it. John Calvin wrote this, interesting and wonderful. Baptism ought not to be estimated by the person of the minister, but that its power depends entirely on its author in whose name and by whose authority it is conferred upon, end quote. See, baptism in scripture, and if you're you're here, you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized, it's very clear in scripture, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. That's why we have a tank under here. We had a baptism recently. We love to do baptism. It's a declaration of the gospel. So it's not a matter of whether I do it or Pastor Ricky does it. The question really is, have you been baptized? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you believe on him, after you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture is clear, be baptized. If you're not, you're disobedient to him. Not me, but to him. And if you have not, come and see me, write me an email, text me, send the pigeon, whatever, and we'll get together and we'll talk about baptism and we'll get you baptized, okay? Now, so Jesus, I'm going to show you a map in a little while, leaves, leaves the northwest side of Jerusalem in the country, and he's becoming more and more popular. He's baptizing, or his disciples are baptizing. John the Baptist hears of it, hears of this, this mass movement away from him to Jesus. He's full of joy, and the religious leaders, though, are getting hot under the collar, okay? And Jesus now is back on the move. Now, I want to, I, I want to just give you some historical, chronological order on what's going on. I think it's important. Okay, Jesus in his early stages of ministry. Now, we know that Jesus ministered about three years. Okay, about three years. The first year of Jesus' ministry has been called the year of inauguration or the year of obscurity. It's kind of a, kind of a quiet time and Jesus is just coming on the scene. Okay, um, it, it's the year in which he was baptized in um, by john he was tempted by by satan in the wilderness and everything we've read so far in john 2 and 3 and 4 is the year of obscurity or the year of the first year of ministry the year of inauguration last week we saw in chapter 3 verse 24 the apostle john writes that the baptist had not been put in prison yet giving us a chronological idea that this is the first year of jesus's ministry not recorded anywhere else in all the gospel, uh, the synoptic gospel, the similar gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, verses one, chapter one through leading up to chapter four, is his first year is coming to a close. The second year is called the year of popularity. We see that happening now. Jesus is starting to become popular. People are starting to follow him. That's year two. Year three is called the, increasing, uh, the year of um, opposition. There's increased hatred toward Jesus. So obscurity popularity, and then the year of uh, opposition. Now, I say all that because toward the end of year one was the time that John was put in prison. Matthew 4, Mark 1 says that when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, put in jail, he withdrew to Galilee. Matthew 4, Mark 1. That's this. Okay, this is chapter 4. If you look... When he leaves, and he goes uh, in verse two, verse three, yeah, verse three, he left and he departed for Galilee. This is the same departing from Galilee. He hears John the Baptist has been put in prison, which is his relative, and he knows the religious leaders are starting to not get happy. They weren't happy about what's going on. So at some point, Jesus is on the move, and he hears that John the Baptist has been put in prison. He knows that the religious leaders are like, listen, uh, we did what we wanted with John the Baptist. Uh, let's now, we'll put an end to this Messiah thing. This is going on at the same time. Some people look at that and they say, oh, well, it, w- John says that the religious leaders found out and Jesus leaves. Ma- Matthew and Mark says that Jesus found out that his cousin, his, ne- his relative, was put in jail and he leaves. Which one is it? It's a contradiction. No, it's not. It's both. Really simple. A lot of times, people will, oh, it says this. That you, sometimes, it's just it's both. Jesus heard the religious leaders who had put John into jail and were were trying to find out what's going on with him, and he also knew he had to go. I mean, it's 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 very simple from a human perspective. It was time for Jesus to press on. It was time for Jesus to move on. He left Judea. Now the word "left" means abandoned. Verse twenty-eight. It says that the woman. Left her water jar by the well. We're going to see that next week. She 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 got water. She couldn't get water, and then she abandoned it. She just left stuff and got out of there. So Jesus hears John the Baptist has been put in jail. He knows that religious leaders are not getting happy, and he says, "I'm out of here. I'm out of here. It's time for me to move on. I'm pressing on. I'm moving out." Okay. So that's what's happening here. From a human perspective, that's the outside circumstances. But from a divine perspective, Jesus, in the Gospel according to John, makes it very clear. Very clear. My time is not yet. My hour is not yet. My time, my hour is my death. Jesus is not on a human perspective, a time frame. Jesus is on the Father's timetable. John 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is not running from people. Jesus is on God's divine sovereign plan, and that dictates when it's time to move on. John's arrested Religious leaders are thinking, well, we're going to get this guy. Let's, let's, and Jesus is like, I'm out of here. I have places to go and people to see, right? All of us have appointments, don't we? Especially this month. Some, some, some of them we get there on time. Some of them we get a little bit late. Some of them, if you're like me, you wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning going, ah, oh, I meant to do that. Meet this one or call that person. I'm like, ah, I should have wrote it down, right? We've got to be somewhere. Doctor's appointments, car repairs. I get more and more doctor's appointments the older I get, but that's another story. <laughs> Community groups, we're having uh, you know, parties, celebration, people to meet, place to go. Let's face it, we're all busy. Jesus was busy too. He was moving on, abandoning Judea because he understood that there was an appointment that was arranged by his father and he needed to be there. Look at verse four, the, the appointment. And he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. Geographically speaking, he did not have to pass through Samaria. Jesus left Judea and started north to Galilee. He could have taken three routes, one of three. I'm going to just give you this. I want you to see this, okay? Let me see if I can do this, okay? Here's Judea. Here's Jerusalem. Jesus is out here somewhere. John is up here before his arrest. Jesus is down here, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, okay? He's here. Now, the red, he could have went straight to Joppa and walked this way, just along the coast, and would have missed Samaria completely. Or he could have went Transjordan, which is called over here, Perea, and go all the way around. All right? He's not riding riding a bike. All right? He's not in a car. He's walking, just in case you're wondering. Okay? But he decided... Because he had to go straight from here, bam, right into Samaria. Sakar, see that? Sychar, that's where he's going. So rather than go around Samaria, it says that he had to go through. Okay? Now, you may think, so what? Well, I'm going to give you the so what, okay? It's why it's important. I'll give you a little history lesson, just really quick. I won't go back to Genesis, not that far back. But anyway, Solomon the king had one kingdom that he was ruling over, 12 tribes. Solomon died, the kingdom is split. North and south. 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. All of Israel, 12 tribes, 10 and 2. Okay? The northern kingdom of Israel, their capital was Samaria. Yeah, so you learned something. The bottom two, Benjamin and Judah, their capital was Jerusalem. So they live in life, sinning like all of us do, and God's like, listen, you guys either knock it off and repent or um, I'm going to discipline you. And they're like, yeah, sure, okay. Prophet after prophet. So God says to the northern kingdom, which had zero good kings. Judah, I think, had seven or eight. The northern kingdom had no good kings. So God's like, okay, you guys don't want to listen? You don't want to learn? He sends the Assyrian army into around 720 BC, the Assyrian army into the northern kingdom. They sacked the place they conquer the place, they burn down Samaria, the capital, and then they take gather a lot of the Jews, which they did back then, and deport them. And then they take all their people and their false gods and they put them in the land in which they conquer. So Samaria becomes a place, after a while, the Jews are settling in, of multi-worship, false-worship gods. You find that in 2 Kings chapter, let's see, chapter 17. Samaria had come to be a place where the Jews... Intermarried, mixed race, and worship false gods with that mixed race, and they were hated for it by the by the Jewish people, the the pure genuine Jew. So later on, five ninety seven B C, the Southern Kingdom, which which Jerusalem is its uh, capital. God's—they they don't listen either, and God sends them in. He's like, yo, didn't you see what I did to, the, to your brothers in the north? They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. God does the same thing; he disciplines his people. They tear down Jerusalem, they burn the city, they ransack the place. This time it's Babylon; they're the world power at the time, and they're in exile. Now, some of you were here when we did the Ezra and Nehemiah series. Ezra opens up with the Jews going back after 70 years of captivity, just like God said. And the Jews go back under Nehemiah, if you remember, and they go into, uh, and Ezra, they go into the city of Jerusalem and they want to rebuild the temple. And the Samaritans come down and say, look, we'll help you. And they're like, no, I don't think so. Like, oh, we're, we're, we want to help you rebuild a temple. You're our brothers. No, you're a half breed. They were not happy. So the Samaritans, say, like, you guys going to build your own temple? All right, well, I'm going to build a temple too. I'm going to build it in, in Gerizim, the mountain in Samaria. That's going to come into play later on as well. So there's this, there's this hatred toward this mixed race, the Jews and the Samaritans, because of that. To make matters worse, in between the Old Testament and New Testament, intertestamental period, the Jews burned down their temple. So that doesn't help. Well, that way you work, let's, let's, let's burn it down. We're friends now, right? So there's a lot of hatred, which we'll see, between the true, genuine Jewish people and the half-breed Samaritans, okay? Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? He had a divine appointment to keep. He's always going about the Father's will. The word had to is, is a Greek word. It's, it's, it means urgency. It means necessity, Chapter 3, verse 14, Moses was lifted up in a servant, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That word must is the same word. There's a necessity, there's an urgency. The Lord is compelled to go through Samaria to stop, at a, you know, to, stop to see this woman, he has a divine appointment. It wasn't because it was the shorter route. It's because the Father had given him an assignment. He is always obedient to the Father to pass through to meet that woman. I guess the question for us today is, do you have divine appointments? Do you have divine appointments? Do you see your scheduling and appointments, times and opportunities, and all that we say and do as uh, divine appointments that we can declare, show and love the gospel of Jesus Christ? To, to talk and to mention and to turn things around to Jesus Christ, to share the gospel I am absolutely convinced, not only from this text, but of all of Scripture, that the appointments that you have have been divinely given to you to demonstrate God's love and to declare God's truth to the world around us. That is absolutely true. And the problem is, if we're honest, and I'm honest with myself too, I don't always see my appointments that way. Sometimes they're just appointments. But well, God has given us divine appointments, but we don't see the importance or the urgency of these appointments. One of the great rivalry, football rival, rivalries in college is Alabama and Auburn. One game it was really close, and Alabama was ahead by a couple of points. And it was the fourth quarter, a few minutes left, Alabama got the ball, um, but they're starting quarterback, and their second-string quarterback was injured. So Alabama was up a little bit, but they had a couple of seconds left, so they called his third-string, flimsy, kind of slow-footed, clumsy individual, and Bear Bryant, Alabama's coach, says, listen, boy, listen, you got, game's almost over. This is what I want you to do. Take the football, go out there, and when you take the snap, fall down. Do that four times. By the time that's over, the game will be over. We will win. Kid's like, all right, I'll, I'll, okay, coach, and he runs out, takes the snap, falls to the ground, down one. Like okay, takes the snap down two, and he, all of a sudden he's noticing every time he takes a snap, the, the Auburn's getting closer and closer. It's like oh my, the crowd in the line. Three, takes the snap, boom, falls to the ground. Down three, one more down. He thinks to himself, man, you know what? All I gotta do is pass to the tight end. I mean, the crowd in the line, and just he'll the tight end will run it. We'll be way ahead, and it won't matter. Takes the fourth. Steps back, throws a wobbling pass to his tight end. All of a sudden, his safety out of nowhere. Grabs the ball and starts streaking toward the end line, to the end zone. This flimsy-footed quarterback chases after him, runs as fast as he can, right before the goal, and tackles him. Alabama wins. The coach of the, other, of the Alabama comes up to Bear Bryant and goes, Listen, coach, I don't understand this. That's my fastest player. That is your slowest player player. How the heck did he ever catch that guy? And Bear Bryant said, you know, it's very simple. You see, your guy was running for six points. My guy was running for his life. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the race. Is it not the race? Eternal life, eternal death. It's that important. People are running the race with their lives. Do we grasp That race we are running, the life of love we are living has eternity at the heart of the message we are proclaiming. It's that important, folks. God has appointed us, his children, as ambassadors for him, not to speak what we want, but to speak for him. He has brought many souls into our lives. Please let us run with all our hearts. As the old hymn goes, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. He had to go to Samaria. Samaria. He he had a divine appointment, but also, you know why? He's not a respecter of persons. Look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there won't get into that much of a, of a geographical or history lesson, but just Jacob, one of the 12 patriarchs, bought this land, fed his family from this well, fed his animals, and when Jacob died, he said to his son Joseph, Genesis 48, uh, this land belongs to you, Joseph, okay? the Israelites are in, you know, Egypt. Joseph's there with them, and he dies in Egypt, and he tells them, listen, if we ever go back, which we will, God said we will, take my bones with you. Don't leave me here in Egypt. Take my bones back. Sure enough, wandering the desert, they got the bones of Joseph and they go back to this plot of land. Important well. Not only is it important well, the region, there's a mountain right there in Bicycar called Gerizim. Abraham, Isaac constructed altars and worshiped the Lord there. The congregation of God's people worshiped the Lord at that mountain in antiquity. They praised God for his provision and his presence in their life. And this is an important piece of land. So when Jesus comes to this important historical town, he encounters a woman. Later he'll talk to her about the mountain. I think it's in verse 20. What verse is that in? Let's see, chapter four, verse 26. Oh, excuse me, 20 uh, followers worshiped on this mountain. That's the mountain. It's an important piece of property. Even though it's where it is, it still has historical you know, importance to it. The, the Samaritans did worship Yahweh to some degree. They understood. They believed in Abraham. Very important piece of property, right? He's going to talk to her about worship. We'll look at that next week. But right now he talks to her about water. Verse 6b. Jesus was wearied, right? Fully human, fully God. Gets wearied. He was from his journey. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is around noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It wasn't, it wasn't a request. Give me a drink is emphatic, like he just like give me a drink like i created the water i'm thirsty that's what, yeah. <laughs> quote for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food johns letting us know the samaritan woman said how is it that you a jew we just talked about that asked for a drink from me a woman of samaria again john for jesus jews had no dealings with samaritans couple things we want to point out number 1 in this, in this encounter, in this approach. Number one, Jesus Christ looked beyond cultural barriers in his mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ looked beyond cultural barriers in his mission to seek and save the lost. It was a divine appointment with the hated people called Samaria. Okay, I, hopefully we're beyond this, but may it be, never be with the church that we have divides like that. You may be very different than your neighbor. You may be very different from the people at your job or in your school, but God loves them and placed you in their life for that divine appointment. Number two, not only was she a hated Samaritan, but she was a woman. Total taboo in that culture. By asking for a drink from a woman who had come to the well alone, broke all the rules of Jewish virtue. I mean, by his initiative, he invited the accusation of others that he lived in an ungodly, wicked manner or, 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 or a, a flirtatious manner. Jewish men did not speak to women in public. Verse 27, if you look down, when the disciples come back, they're like, yo, you talking to that girl? Like, really? Yeah, he was. It was that way in that culture. So let me say something here about this, okay? What this may look to those, including his disciples, was not good. And although we must be careful what we do and who we talk to, let's all agree that Jesus is not sinning, right? He's without sin. So others may say, "Ah, oh, that's shady, that's not right. We know that Jesus was not sinning. What people like to do, they love to throw a verse around, and maybe you've heard it, if you've been around long enough, people love to throw around First Thessalonians 5, verse 22 in the King James Bible when they talk about stuff what we should be talking to who we shouldn't be talking to, it says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Anybody hear that verse for? Abstain from all appearance of evil. So they conclude that if someone sees us talking or doing something that they think that may appear to them as evil, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't talk to them. If that's the case... Then in Luke 7, when Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee, and a woman comes in who's a prostitute, takes her alabaster, which he probably used to get men with, breaks it and cries at his feet, wiping his feet with his hair, anointing his feet and just weeping at his feet, that don't look really good. Jesus. And if you think that's not true, look, chapter 7 verse 39, the Pharisees who invited him saw this and said, "Like, this guy thinks he's a prophet." If he was, he would have known what sort of woman this was touching him. She's a sinner. It didn't look good to them. Was Jesus sinning? No. Did it appear to some self-righteous religious leaders that he was? Yes. So obviously avoiding anything that may look like sin according to some self-righteous hypocrite does not mean we shouldn't engage in love people. I can't say it any clearer than that, right? I, like, yeah, just tell it like it is, Pastor. Yeah, that's uh, why I went here. People who are twisted and really broken are the people that God came to save. The word appearance means form and figure and shape of evil. What Paul is telling him in Thessalonians is very simple. Stay away from all the kinds of evil, the particular shapes and forms and figures uh, that, that are evil you should avoid. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't enter into a situation where someone may say, how dare you talk to that person. Now, the flip side of that is we have to be careful, right? Married men, married women... You know, we need, we need to be wise. Don't mean to be an idiot. Don't mean to put yourself in a situation where you're going to sin or you're going to cause somebody else to sin. I mean, we're not talking about that. You know, guys coming out of rehab, guys getting, you know, don't go back into the crack houses and try to preach the gospel. You know, don't go into the bars and if, if, if that's a temptation for you, stay away from that. Guys, you want to be careful. You know, don't go into a single woman's home if you're married. You know, let's use some common sense, but let's not ever get to the place where we look at somebody and think, Wow, they're really bad. You look the same way. <laughs> if you're the standard is Jesus, you look the same way. I look the same way. Jesus, Jesus looked beyond that. Jesus did not look at her and did not see her as just an issue, but a person to be loved. So when somebody comes into the room, are we quick to talk or are we quick to run? Are we like, you know what, they're really sinful, I don't know. You know, you, you see their issues, but you can't see the person. That's a problem. Jesus saw the person. Listen, not only were they hated Samaritan, not only was she a woman, but you know what the scripture says, too, that she came alone. She was by herself. Now, you may think, all right, so she's come to get water by herself. No, didn't work that way in that culture. Women in God did not walk the long journey with those giant pots that they used to, to clean, you know, their their bodies, to clean their uh uh to wash things, to cook with. It was a big pot and they would come out together. But this is no one here with this woman. It's in the middle of the day, which is odd too because they don't come in the middle of the day. It's hot. They come in the morning or they come at night, and they don't come alone. She's alone. Why? Look down at verse 16. We're going to cover this next week. Go call your husband. Oh Oh, yeah, you had five. Yeah, the one you're with's not. She was an outcast. She wasn't going with anybody because nobody wanted to go with her. She had a reputation. She was an outcast. She was she was you know morally and socially on the outs. But Jesus deliberately crosses every single barrier that morality, traditional religion, society, and culture would put in between them. Even risking becoming unclean. By drinking from her water pot or her ladle. Look at verse 9. In fact, it says Jews has not dealings with the Samaritan. See that? Now the word dealings in the context is talking about sharing utensils. She hasn't yet realized that when something is unclean to the Jews and drinking from a Samaritan pot drinking from her ladle or something, it was unclean. What she didn't realize is that when Jesus touches something unclean, he doesn't become unclean. When Jesus touches something unclean, the unclean becomes clean. Amen? That, that's the touch of the Savior. The woman with the, with, the, with, the, with the flow of blood was unclean. No, not when Jesus touched her. She became clean. He imparts cleanness. That's Jesus, right? She don't even know that yet. Now, one last thing. Look what Jesus does. He moves the conversation from the physical to the spiritual. Verse 7, give me a drink of water. I'm thirsty. Verse 10, he moves into this idea that these natural needs, everyone's thirsty, everyone drinks, we're all in humanity together, and then he moves from the the natural needs of humanity to the spiritual needs of all people, of all sin, because we're all sinners. And that's, I think, very, very important to notice. It is true that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I believe very strongly in demonstrating the gospel with love and good deeds and caring about people living in um broken humanity just like you. I believe very strongly in that. But at some point, the conversation needs to turn. Jesus takes the natural needs of humanity and moves them to the spiritual needs. See how he does that? You know, how many conversations do we have where we miss that opportunity to take what we all go through, all the things in life that we go through, and we turn it around and make it a spiritual matter? Simple, calm, common situations are, are springboards, to, springboards to spiritual truth. I'll give you a couple. Get you thinking. If you get some more, send them to me. Like parenting. You're parenting your child. What an opportunity to talk to another parent and say, you know what, my father in heaven. No, God, God is a parent too. He's a perfect parent. You just turn the conversation around. A conversation about politics. I know you've got to be careful. But sometimes conversations, if they're not trying to kill each other, about politics gives you an opportunity to turn it around and say, you know what? Everybody's broken. This whole world is broken. Nobody, no one person is going to change the world except Jesus. I just had that conversation with somebody the other day. We're in different parties. We're in different views. And you know what? I wasn't about to try to change his mind. I'm trying to preach Jesus. I turned the conversation. You know what? And right, we started talking about the gospel for 45 minutes. A conversation about being sick or trouble. You go to prayer. A conversation. What'd you do for the weekend? Talk about Sunday morning. School, career. Turn conversations into how you're trusting God for the future. You know, there, there's ways of doing it. The problem is we're not looking for them. So I want to encourage you to look for them. Look for opportunities where the gospel comes in. Look for opportunities where things of everyday life can be turned around and a conversation could be started about Jesus. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. We all are. You know what? I, you, you don't, I don't know my Bible enough. You probably never will get to the place of knowing your Bible enough, but you know enough. If, if Jesus saved you, you know enough. And I know it's tough. Fear factor is hard. I get that. But I think, I think if we, as ambassadors of Christ, love people, And look for conversations. Love will win. And they'll listen to you. They may not respond. That's God's job. Don't worry about it anyway. But an opportunity to take a conversation and turn it around. It's not somebody else's job. It's not my job. It's all of our jobs. Number four, the abundance. Look what Jesus says. (laughs) Like, uh, can I have a drink? Really? From you? You guys hate us. Well, let let me tell you about living water. Verse 10. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See how he flips the script? He flips it on her. When he began the exchange, he was thirsty. Give me a drink. Now the exchange is going on. He's like, no, I'm not the one thirsty. You are. Really? You don't know it yet, but you are. She looks at Jesus. She's got to be thinking, wow, first you want a drink. You don't have nothing to get it from you want to give me this gift, you got nothing to draw from the well, you're a strange man. I can't, you can only imagine, right? Verse 11, a woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drunk from it himself and so his sons and, and his cattle, livestock. I mean, Jesus could have said, yeah, uh, yeah actually I am greater than Jacob. You know, just so you know, I am greater. I'm the Messiah. And that would have been the end of it. But he didn't. He leads her along that path. Jesus points to her spiritual needs. She's not getting it yet. She's still focused on worldly things. But the water he offered, it was a different kind. It was a kind that would satisfy her beyond anything this world can give her. I mean, she's having this conversation with a tired Jewish traveler, exhausted one. She has not seen his glory yet, but she will. Let's look at this water and let me give you three things you can jot down. We can talk about it in community group. Let me give you three characteristics of this living water. Number one, the living water is, number one, permanent. Jesus contrasts, his response contrasts the temporary result of drinking this water from the well of Jacob with the permanent result of receiving water, living water from him. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the well, will be thirsty. But whoever drinks, verse 14a, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Now, I am no way near any kind of Greek scholar whatsoever. I have some tools that I can look stuff up and I read. Now, you don't usually talk about this, but this is really cool, and I want you to see what I saw this week, okay? In that verse... Greek tense that Jesus is saying is this. Everyone drinks this water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again and again and again and again and again and again, again. continuously. Continually drinking this water will be thirsty. You'll be thirsty always. Always be thirsty. You'll always drink. You'll always be thirsty. Verse 14, though, when he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again, that's an arous subjunctive, which means when you receive this water, whoever drinks the water that I am gonna give them once and for all, will never, ever double negative. Never, ever, never, never, ever, ever, never. Once and for all, always abundant, always permanent, flow from you very differently. The living water Jesus is talking about is that permanent relationship. We'll see in chapter seven of the Holy Spirit. He pours out on us. The relationship that we have with Jesus is through the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll see in John seven. John 14, He though, he says, Ask the Father, and He'll give you the help of the, the Holy Spirit. He will be with you forever. Forever. It's permanent. It's not just permanent, it has this ability to totally satisfy her longings. Remember. Two weeks ago, we talked about Nicodemus. He must be born of water and of the Spirit. He was pointing to the Old Testament, the new covenant that God promised in the Old Testament in several places. We saw Ezekiel 36. Listen to Isaiah now, this time. With joy will you draw waters from the well of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deed among the people. Proclaim his name. This is the drinking of the water. Exalt him joyfully drawing water from the well of salvation. That's Isaiah. Living water, like he told Nicodemus, is the new birth. It's the work of the Spirit in your heart. It's Jesus coming to reside in you by the way of the Holy Spirit. Now, put yourself back in Palestine for a minute, 2,000 years ago, right? Water was life. God used the metaphors through his prophets about water because how important water was living in the desert. It was life. Without water, you're dead. And God uses this to say that this water that I will give you through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent, will permanently satisfy the thirst of God's people. So it's permanent. Number two, it's abundant. The word I will give him will become in him a spring of well a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You and I go to the faucet, right, left, right, cold, hot. It's just not, it wasn't that case back then, right? And that's why God used this metaphor. He's teaching us between life and death, and something that He gives us. Now wells can be what covered up. You could dig a well and cover it in dirt, never use it again. But not this. There's an abundance. Of Jesus man he when he comes he says it flows out of, of us D.A. Carson writes this this thirst is not for natural water but for God for eternal life in the presence of God and the thirst is met not by removing this aching desire but pouring out the spirit indeed this water will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life end quote that word well up you can just underline it means to leap and to bubble Jesus says, come to me and you will leap with my presence. That's what he's saying. Now, what are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? Are you thirsty for a lot of toys? Are you thirsty for a lot of relationships? Are you chasing around things that will never satisfy? Jesus says, I can give it to you. I am the only one. Tim Keller rightly says, what Jesus is saying is, if you put the bucket of your soul into any other cause, more than my cause, into any other relationship, more than your relationship with me, into any other hope, into any other rest. We just sang about that. Into any other beauty, more than me, you're going to die of thirst. What do you thirst for? What are you thirsting for? Relationships, joy, peace, love, approval, acceptance. What are you searching for? What is your heart longing for that you are not getting. Jesus says in me, I give you purpose. I'll give you love. I'll give you approval, acceptance, a spiritual inner peace that when things go bad, when things go really bad, my beauty, my glory, my spirit poured out on you will be enough, will be enough. It is abundant. It is permanent. And finally, it is sufficient. Family, think with me for a minute. Especially if you've been here in a couple of weeks, hopefully you at least heard the CDs. Is permanence abundance sufficient? Do you see the connection? I want to make this connection for you, and then we'll close. Between Nicodemus and this woman. Jesus comes to her and she just doesn't get it. I have water that will never run out. It's permanent. It's life. It's real. It, it, it'll satisfy your deep longings. Sir, uh, you got nothing to draw from this well. How are how you, how you going to do that? Nicodemus, you need to be born again, you Old Testament scholar. All your Bible-thumping knowledge, you're not going to be able to get into heaven. Really? Uh, How do I climb back into my mother's womb? Right over the head, right? Sir, where's your bucket? I don't know what you're talking about. Rabbi, how am I supposed to do that? I'm a religious genius and scholar. I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you see what this is telling us? This is telling us that we are Nicodemuses. We are the woman at the well. Unable to see the glory until God shows it to us. First, there's a highly religious and moral insider who who didn't understand that he needed to be born from above. Now we have this immoral outcast and Jesus tells them both, come to me if you want living water. Come to me if you want to be satisfied. He took the time, he had an appointment to make and took the initiative to talk to this woman. He didn't exclude her. By offering this gift, he says, this gift. He doesn't exclude you either. He doesn't exclude you either. Now all I said about the methods on this this demonstration of declaring the gospel, taking the natural, turning to the spiritual, is true. We have to think upon those things, but I don't want you to miss the main thing here. We are Nicodemus. We are the ones working and working and working trying to justify our lives, to find meaning in life, justify oneself through moral achievements. Or the moral, immoral woman, ashamed. Ashamed of our past, ashamed of what our future may look like, caught up in sin and in darkness, living by our own rules, justifying ourselves through irreligion, justifying ourselves by being our own Lord and our own Saviors. But when you and I see that we are completely dead, Nicodemus, you're dead. Woman at the well, you're dead. You're unable to save yourself. You're in darkness, whether it's through religion or irreligion, doing the right thing or trying to do your own thing. You've got to come to Jesus. And then when you come out of grace and mercy, this gift of eternal life is given to you. And streams of water, he says, will propel us on mission. You see, it's one beggar talking to another beggar. It's one person in darkness who's seen the light talking to another person who's in darkness. There are no barriers. There are no racial, there are no cultures when we come all dead the same way. All culture, all race, all finances, anything is blown apart. One beggar telling another beggar where to get living water. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. You see, Jesus is the true and better Jacob who did not provide water through digging a well, but by being hung on a cross where he cried out, I thirst. There's a little passage in Nahum. He's a prophet, Old Testament prophet. Listen to this passage. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before God's judgment, indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Do you see? Do you see on the cross at the hour, Jesus says, I thirst, I really thirst. The thirst of water, the dehydration that can ultimately slowly kill us is just a picture of what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross where he bore the fiery hot wrath and indignation of the Father for your sin and for my sin. The justice of God, the the wrath of God greater than any fire could ever burn came down on him for you and for me. We can drink of this living water. We can be satisfied because he rescued us from sin and judgment. He gave us eternal life that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ because on the cross, he said, I thirst. The hot, fiery judgment fell upon him. So why don't you ask him this morning? Why don't you ask him for this eternal life, this living water? We're going to see the Samaritan next week. He points out her sin to get her to realize how desperately she needs him. We're all sinned and fall short of God's glory. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. And Jesus is coming to the religious or the irreligious one and he's saying, I alone can satisfy your longing. Come to me and drink. Maybe today's the first day you're going to come and drink. You're going to confess your sins, repent means turn from your sin and say, Jesus, give me the living water. Satisfy me through your death, burial, and resurrection. Or maybe it's time for you to come back. You've tasted the living water. It's permanent. It's waiting. It's time to say, I've got to put all those other satisfactions and treasures aside. Jesus, you're my treasure. You're my ultimate treasure. The incalculable worth of who you are and all that you've done is my only hope. Will you come? Drink. He offers that gift to you. Father, urgency, necessity, truth, how important it is, eternally important, that we come to you for living water. Father, I pray, we pray, your spirit be poured out on this place. Father, that we would see our sin, but see our Savior. That Lord, no matter how much we've tried, it's never enough. And no matter how much we run, you'll always welcome us home. So Father, as we sing, as we worship, bring us to the place of seeing the true satisfying treasure of Jesus Christ. His birth, his ministry, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection from the grave guaranteeing satisfaction for sin, eternal life for those who trust you. Come.